0: Welcome to Our Social Impact, brought to you by the Prison Scholar Fund. The PSF's mission is to provide education and employment assistance to help currently and formerly incarcerated people succeed and thrive in society, while avoiding homelessness and the revolving door of re-incarceration. The PSF also advocates for reform and correctional education to increase opportunity for all. As a nonprofit, we rely on investments, volunteers, and are always looking for board members to champion our mission. Please connect with us through our website at prisonscholars.org, where you can find volunteer opportunities, make a contribution, and learn more about becoming a board member. You can also email us at info at prisonscholars.org and find us through most social media platforms at prison scholars become a patron by supporting us directly at patreon with at prison scholars we appreciate your review of this podcast through whatever platform you listen through without further ado here's dirk van velsen founder and ceo of the prison scholar fund
1: so welcome to our social impact today we have Violeta alvarez and you're at the underground scholars initiative
2: yes correct
1: and we're also at berkeley
2: we are we're at Styles Hall
1: isn't this in the number one public university in California?
2: I sure hope so <laughs> <laughs> and
1: what's that's st- why I came here <laughs> yeah and what's Styles Hall? Tell me about that
2: um so Styles Hall is this uh, organization that the well the building is owned by Berkeley, but they're a nonprofit organization, and they dedicate all their programming is specifically targeted to help increase the numbers of african american latinx um, and Native American students into uh, UC Berkeley and other UCs, but particularly Styles Hall is, you know, has close ties to UC Berkeley. Okay. Um, and uh, Underground Scholars Initiative is uh, basically we started having space here in Styles Hall um, because they supported our initiative from the beginning.
1: And were you part of the organization all the way through?
2: Yeah, I transferred in 2013. And uh, when I transferred in, there was already a couple of people that were having conversations about having a an organization or a space for formerly incarcerated individuals, such as uh, Project Rebound over at SF State, which at the time was the only program um, at any um, state school.
1: Okay. So tell me about your journey here. I think we're all kind of in the same bucket being yeah. formerly incarcerated.
2: <laughs> Definitely. Um, let's see. I grew up in San Diego, California. I... Um, didn't, uh, I would say the first seven, eight years, I grew up in Mexico, um, and then my mom immigrated here with uh, myself and two of my, bre- and my two brothers, there's three of us, um, so grew up in a single-parent household. Um, at the time, the community where I grew up, there was, a, there was a lot of prevalence for, like, gangs, violence, drugs, stuff that was easily accessible, um, and that, you know, if, basically, if you, it was pretty hard to not be around it if you had a lot of time on the streets.
1: And if you're around it, you're kind of in it. Correct. Because that's, that's your reference group.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I do think that I was exposed to it at a very young age because my mom worked uh, two full-time jobs and uh, dad was not around. So I think it's one of those um, where you you're kind of left on your own to fend for yourself and the streets were... Um, where I took, I would say, refuge.
1: And do you have brothers and sisters?
2: I do. Uh, my older brother, um, my younger brother is currently in prison, um, and he's been in prison for the last eight and a half years. Uh, my older brother um, is not, um, and uh, he, he has been uh, incarcerated before, but he's not currently incarcerated.
1: So this is kind of like the typical story we hear, single mom working a couple jobs, dad's not around, a couple kids at home tough situation.
2: Right. I, my, uh, well, like, I mean, it was inferred from what you said, but I myself am formally incarcerated as well. I think as when I transferred here, it was something that I never really spoke about because I was already a parent myself. And I think the stigma of being formally incarcerated, um, I just didn't want that stigma um, as associated with my name. And so I never really spoke about my journey or being formally incarcerated or, Um, my drug addiction until um, or involvement with basically anything up until the time I transferred here. Um, But I went through community college and um, through all that, you know, basically just being silent about all that.
1: Okay. And so when did your kind of criminal lifestyle start? Do you remember what age that was?
2: Um, I believe it was maybe like around 12, 13 when I went into uh, middle school. Okay. Um, The probably the earliest memories I have of um, starting to use drugs and being involved in, you know, other activities.
1: So what was your path to prison? Was it selling drugs or violent crime, or what did you get caught up in?
2: <laughs> well, uh, it's funny, funny but not funny. But uh, usually <laughs> I don't like to really dwell on the, on the specific crimes. And the only reason why is because I feel that then people could – Hyper criminalize you even further in terms of, okay, this person did this, this person did that. Um, my own personal, I would say, story lands, you know, I was in juvenile hall um, in and out from like age 14 to about, you know, until I turned 18. And then when I was in, when I was an adult, caught a couple of cases as an adult, uh, but it was always kind of uh, in and out of county jail. Uh, my last case, I actually ended up fighting a 10-year case, um, which I won. Um, I was pregnant at the time with my first son, um, and then that was, you know, like my last, uh, my last thing, which I ended up doing about five, six months for that. I came home, and I came home, and I was pregnant. Didn't qualify for any benefits because at that time, um, if you had any drug-related offenses, which at that time I already did. Um, you didn't qualify for like CalFresh or food stamps as what it was called before. Oh, yeah. um, and so I think um, I was homeless. Uh, fortunate enough that, um, you know, uh, my mom was open to having me back and supporting me. Um, but I think uh, that's probably when I hit rock bottom. I was 19, was a high school dropout, didn't have a job, was seven months pregnant. Um, looking at 10 years. Yeah. Uh,
1: kind of getting ready to do the life on the installment plan
2: yeah exactly um i think for some reason or another i was very adamant about fighting my case and not taking a plea deal they wanted me to sign a two-year prison term um which i fought off and i am very very glad that them kind of pushing me to think oh you're not going to be in your kid's life for 10 years just take the deal
1: oh when that starts hitting you yes did you take you to the box
2: Um, no, I, it, it didn't, but I think they, just the way that the system and the way that the, um, DA presents plea deals was just, you know, they, they just want you to take the plea deal so they could have basically, yeah, this person was sent away.
1: Um,
2: but no, I wasn't having it, you know, I.
1: So you didn't take the deal and they dropped their charges?
2: I didn't take the deal, but I ended up basically continuing with the case. Um, and they ended, I ended up signing what's called like a prison lid, um, which basically meant if I did anything the next three years after I came home, whether I stole a candy bar or anything, I would do a mandatory two years plus whatever additional crime I'd committed.
1: Yeah, we have that in Washington. They call it diversion.
2: Y- yeah, that's... Yeah. Um, I think my public defender at the time didn't want me to take the deal because um, he said that most people did not... Most people violated that Yeah. because it was very minor minor things that you could go back.
1: Almost like uh, technical violations on parole, kind of.
2: Definitely, um, but I think being pregnant at that point, I said I just don't care right now. I just want to go home you had and a have have my show. son. Yeah. Have my son, and I think it was even more difficult because I was pregnant, and um, I just would. I just remember, you know, the the CEOs really didn't care. I mean, whether I was pregnant or not, you would still get treated the same. Not that I wanted special treatment, but.
1: Just, just being true like a human would be nice. Uh,
2: yeah, for one, um, you know there was just a lot of things I would say like as a woman being incarcerated. I you know I, I don't know what it's like to be a male incarcerated, but as a woman being incarcerated, I think there were like a lot of things, um, like in terms of before where they would you would only be allowed certain you know sanitary items while you're on your period, even though it's not something that you want, but you just naturally get. Um, just the lack of, like, mental care, medical care, um, and so it's, it's definitely, um, I would say a little different in terms of, um, at least from my experience as a woman being incarcerated, um, and if you're pregnant, CPS gets involved, um, so they automatically want to take your kid away, um, so there's just a lot of, a lot of things in play while I was fighting my case, but, um nonetheless i like i said i was able to come home um i didn't have a house of my own but my you know my mom was you know allowed me the opportunity to come home and she knew that i was 2 months away from giving birth
1: so kind of after that then what happened you kind of uh you had a sounds like you did a lot of thinking <laughs> well at least yeah. a lot of fighting and the fighting kind of made you
2: yeah definitely i think coming home i mean the reality is um I came home and I didn't have a high school diploma, I was seven months pregnant, I didn't have a job, Um, so the circumstances were pretty stacked against me, and then finding out that I didn't qualify for any benefits as well, I think was, you know, I'm like, okay, I need to figure it out for the next couple of months, and just um, as soon as I had my son, I started looking for employment, um, which was not easy, because as you know, having a criminal background, uh, definitely diminishes the opportunities that you have available, and especially once you disclose. I remember, um, you know, always marking that box: "Have you ever been convicted? You know, or arrested? Yes." And then having to explain, and in the best manner, having to explain.
1: Yeah.
2: What sounds better, you know, or how do you explain this crime?
1: Yeah, even the juvenile stuff that still that still pops up. Uh,
2: def- yeah. Uh, well, at that time, for sure, I was still, you know, nineteen twenty. Um, I think um, but I did come home I mean uh, uh, at that time a lot of a lot of the friends that I grew up with were already doing long prison sentences like 10-15 years and um, some of them had already been um, shot and killed Um, others were still heavily addicted to drugs so just really being exposed to all that um, I just wanted a different lifestyle for my son yeah, yeah, what
1: part of California did you grow up in? Where was all this? San
2: Diego. Okay. San Diego, so about 15 miles from the border. Um, I have a lot of uh, ties to, you know, um, the other side, which is Tijuana. Um, we're actually, my family and I are the only ones on this side. Okay. Um, so we're, we're very close to the border. But, um, yeah, having gone through that, I decided to go back to, uh, I enrolled into an adult school, completed my high school diploma, um, and then started taking community college classes. And basically, I think I just wanted to get an AA to have a better opportunity at employment. Um, but like I was saying, you know, most people just I didn't get callbacks until the reality is that I started lying. I started saying no, I didn't have a criminal conviction. And guess how many people started calling me? <laughs> <laughs> a lot more than when I
1: was honest. And then after you got hired, you find out they uh, did, did a background check? They yeah. didn't
2: because I was hired at a small kind of like mom and pop shop well, business, checked. yeah, um, which they did not check. Um, and though I, I lied on the application, it just, I, honest, I did what I had to do at the time to survive. I mean, honestly, like I couldn't find a job. I had to support my, my child and myself. Um, and so I think that was the, Main reason why I decided to go to community college is because I said, well, probably employers will overlook the fact that I have a criminal background if I have an AA.
1: If you have something to balance it off, yeah.
2: Yeah, so it started just like that. I went to community college, but I was also working full-time. I couldn't afford to be a full-time student, so my journey in community college was definitely different. I was in your typical... I was there during the day. Most of my classes were at night after I finished my 8 to 5 um, shift at work, and... I think there was just this one professor that really saw potential in me. He was a Latino professor at San Diego Community College, uh, Professor Martinez, I remember. And um, he was just very um, kind of persistent, helped me uh, do like a tag application to UCLA um, and just was well, like well, a guide.
1: What's a tag application?
2: So it's it's basically increases your chances of getting admitted into UCLA. Not all the UCs have it, but... I, I And I don't recall if it's called TAG or TAP because it's, it's yeah. different. Uh, I've heard
1: you guys had some kind of transfer program for undergraduates. Yeah. For like AAs to the, yeah. the grade schools. Yeah.
2: So that was like, I know some schools have it. Um, I'm not sure if Berkeley has it, but it was a TAP. I actually never imagined I'd come to Berkeley. I just had an extra fee waiver and oh,
1: no way this is, your, like, safe, <laughs> this is your safety school like well, my,
2: my school was all, all the time I wanted to go to UCLA I wanted to get away from home but not I wasn't that far yeah um so yeah and I had an extra fee where and we people said why don't you apply to Berkeley I'm like what's Berkeley yeah <laughs> um so people are like oh it's a really great school and so I did and I ended up getting into all four UCs that I applied to wow um
1: what was your GPA at this point I,
2: I had like
1: a 3.9. <laughs> there you go, 3.9. It was
2: pretty good, working given, given. Yeah, I was working full time, but I think I was really driven by just wanting to leave San Diego and wanting, um, kind of like a better opportunity. Um, it was very hard. I think I didn't have a life for a couple years, um, and I definitely could not have done it without the support of my mom because she would help pick up my son from like. Um, head start so then I would attend night school, uh, like night classes, then pick them up, go
1: home, and do all that. So, you got some pretty good family support,
2: uh, mostly my mom. Okay,
1: you're <laughs> the first uh, person in your family to get a college degree. Yes, congratulations! Thank you.
2: Yeah, I was the first one, and then once I came to uh, I actually decided to come to Cal because Cal offered me more money. That's um, a good reason, so yeah. <laughs> Being a, so actually UC Berkeley is the only UC that if you're a student parent, um, they have like an additional grant that you don't have to pay back. Okay. Um, and so they're the only UC, I'm not sure if any other UC now offers it, but at the time they were the only UC that offered that. And they also had a, like they have family housing. Okay. Um, and so I came to check out the school when I just, I felt that it was like the best opportunity. My son was four at that time already. Um, and so I transferred in and I was still, you know, you could say in the closet about being formally incarcerated and about all these things that I had affected. Um, and more than that, I think I still had all this trauma that I hadn't really dealt with. Um, so I was kind of on the go, but never really opened about my former trauma, the stuff that I had to, you know, deal with being formally incarcerated. Um, and so at the time I transferred in 2013, my brother was transferring to a prison, his the first, his prison term. Um, and how long is
1: he going down for?
2: So he got a pretty long <coughs> time, um, over 25 years. Um, he's been in for eight and a half now. Um, but it was a very, I would say, very depressing time that I was being applauded for transferring to like the number one public university. But the closest person to me, which is my brother, uh, or that particular brother, um, he was being transferred to a prison. So it was very.
1: That's gotta be hard.
2: Yeah, yeah. it was very ironic and I, I don't even know the words to put it, but a time where it should have been, a time that should have been, I would say, like full of happiness was definitely not. Um, was definitely a lot of survivor's
1: guilt. Yeah, there's a big cloud over that achievement. Yeah
2: yeah definitely a lot of survivor's guilt um and just you know having those thoughts of why why did i make it out or you know um, kind of like those thoughts definitely survivor's guilt and imposter syndrome for sure um especially coming to a university like berkeley where a lot of students have parents who are professionals who uh, grew up in a six-figure income household and coming here and you know, sitting next to a lot of individuals or classmates that would say, oh, you know, I have a beach house or we have a vacation home. And, you know, and I'm sitting in class hearing just where are you going for spring break? I'm like, <laughs> I'm driving to San Diego because <laughs> I can't afford a flight. Yeah. Uh, so just to I think coming to Berkeley really um, made me burst out of that bubble that you grow up in as a low income individual um, and where you kind of are not exposed to
1: other worldly things. Yeah, you have a different reference group in some weird way.
2: Yeah. Now, and this is where Underground Scholars comes into play. So when I transferred, um, you know, I heard there's some folks that wanted to start an organization or a, to have a space for formerly incarcerated and system-impacted students. And
1: It, it sounds like when you got here, you kind of kept your head down and just you're doing you this so, was like
2: the first couple of weeks and i heard there was this meeting and i'm like interesting yeah, that
1: cross your radar
2: i i was like there's four million incarcerated students at cal what like,
1: it's like <laughs> who let them in
2: yeah exactly
1: <laughs> there's got to be a rule
2: and i didn't talk about that in my personal statement because i thought i would be denied admission yeah. so it was always very closeted and and, I, and they're like
1: they're public about this yeah
2: what? they're exactly um and i actually remember going to my first meeting and uh
1: did you like try to like sneak in just in case it was a setup?
2: I actually, I, I was just very attentive. Like I was very hesitant to be open, but I was listening in to, you know, that's where I met Danny Murillo, Steven Cifra. Um, I met another person, um, Wendy. Um, and, you know, I think I, I, believe I met like one of uh, the professors that really uh, supported our, our endeavor, which was, uh, I think it, um, it was Victoria Robinson at that time. Um, and so, like, I was just listening to what they were saying. Um, I was still very taken aback of like what was going on, and you kind of wary. I was, yeah. I was fairly new. Did, did I'm did like, did you give
1: There's... a fake name like <laughs> 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 AA? <laughs> Hi, I'm AA. Hi Bob. Welcome, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No,
2: and I think. Um, that, you know, I actually started going more to these meetings. I ended up self-disclosing that, like, I had been incarcerated, that, you know, my brother was also incarcerated, or he was currently doing time. Um, and I think that fall, we became an official student organization, became Underground Scholars Initiative.
1: Are you a 501c3 then?
2: We weren't. Um, now, under under... Under the UC Berkeley uh, school, they, they are a 501. Oh, okay. um, Where you have a
1: fiscal sponsor being UC Berkeley. Yeah, so gotcha.
2: our, actually our fiscal sponsor as Underground Scholars Initiative was Stiles Hall.
1: Okay.
2: Um, they've always, um, in particular, I would say the director, Dave Stark, has always supported our journey and our expansion.
1: Oh, so Stiles Hall is his own entity outside of yes. UC Berkeley. Yes. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Okay.
2: So Berkeley owns the... the building itself but it's completely Hall is non-profit. yes mm. very cool which is how they're able to um do what they're doing in terms of helping um those particular population because they're their own independent they're not okay you know it's not it's yeah, not, their own mission exactly their own fundraising yes and what
1: do you guys do for fundraising for this uh or, well, for, or what do they do for fundraising for styles well they
2: they have you know a board and they they do a lot of fundraising in terms of reaching out to big uh Big companies, um, and I think uh, even people who've came from Styles Hall and now have other positions are they they donate back, they give back to the community.
1: Okay. Um, so, what was your involvement, kind of forming Underground Scholars?
2: Um, so, like I said, when I came in, you know, folks were already having a conversation about it. Um, there had been a class where they it was like a reading group, and they were part of that. Um, in the fall twenty thirteen, we became an official organization. Um, We started. um, We started kind of reaching out. People started finding out about us. Um, People started writing letters to us from prison, and I mean, we had like a really small office. Um, We got our first grant from campus as a student org, where we were able to purchase like a computer, printer. I'm kind of like our first official setup. It was and you got office space here. Yeah, very cool.
1: You're legit. Yeah, we were legit. We
2: were running. We were up and running uh, in spring 2014. Um, and that back then there was maybe like six, seven of us. I would say this was like spring twenty fourteen. Fast forward, I know now there's more than forty five students involved.
1: All formally incarcerated. <laughs>
2: um, no, not necessarily.
1: I'm just I, passionate about I, the mission. I, I think
2: there's even more if you count all the system impacted individuals, but I would say at least for sure there's at least twenty five that are all formally incarcerated. Okay. Um that are currently have self-identified um and I'm, I'm including people who now have moved on and done a full circle from undergrad well we have folks who used to write to us from prison they came home they applied they got into berkeley um and some are even doing master's programs now so it's like a full circle for me to be able to see folks who used to write to us and now they're you know uh, here at, at cal
1: that's amazing yeah i mean berkeley is always kind of been on the forefront of social change so maybe that's not surprising yeah but that's I, still awesome
2: I think it was mostly us <laughs> yeah.
1: well, you, um, yeah, the door is open you could do what you wanted this is yeah Berkeley.
2: definitely I think we, we also what we did is we reached out to legislators so we worked closely with uh, former nine district state senator uh, Nancy Skinner um, and, you know, she pioneered a lot of, um, I would say, a lot of bills that have helped our people in particular. Oh, yeah. So let's um, talk
1: about that. So like, it just sounds like you guys formed this cute little organization. Yeah, no. But you're actually doing things. We,
2: we definitely, definitely we worked with her. And um, due to that collaboration, we got half a million dollars in the summer of 2016.
1: Nice. Um, and that you have a budget.
2: Yeah. That's kind of when we became part of the university. And they wanted or they needed a program director. So I applied. I graduated in 2016 and got the job. And so I became the first full-time program
1: director. Congratulations.
2: Thank you. I miss it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This is your legit gig.
2: Yeah, it it is like it's definitely did you, did you, you know like a on, baby. <laughs>
1: did you check the box on the application this time? I did. <laughs> I'm on <honest> this <laughs> now. Like forming crisis? <laughs> yes, I am. They knew. Um, you might not have got the job otherwise. <laughs> yeah,
2: they knew, and so these were the these were the types of conversations we were having. We also worked on ban the box. So I'm not sure if you're aware, but um, even though the ban the box was was uh, something that was already passed in California, the UC system itself is very exempt for many California laws um, because they're like their own entity. They're like their own mini government, you can say. Um, but we worked on doing ban the box here at UC Berkeley. And so we were able to um, pass that successfully where folks would not be asked about their prior convictions until they were considered a final candidate for the job.
1: And how do they use that information? Uh,
2: how do they use that information? Uh, do they well, screen against it? Or? Well, if you're a, a final candidate, then at that point, they're supposed to ask you. And if you are, then there are certain measures, metrics that they use in terms of what position are you applying for? How long was your last crime? What was it for? So, of course, if you're applying for something that has to do with money and you were convicted of like embezzlement or something like that, then it, it probably, might be pertinent. Yeah,
1: probably not a good fit. <laughs> right, right. You're not going to be working the daycare if you're playing with the kids. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. And so uh, they do take those into consideration. We don't exactly know the numbers, um, but they said there's very few. I think just in general, people didn't want to apply because they had these barriers. So you were like, why am I even going to waste my time on this application and they're, not, they're, not they're going to overlook me? Um, and that's kind of
1: like the two parts. Like just having the box there just weighs a lot of people from applying in the first exactly. place. But then even when people know, okay, even the box isn't there, then we're going to find out later and then...
2: Exactly. But I think it gives you more because once you interview first and then if you're a finalist, then they ask you about it. And so I think that that gives you the opportunity to meet someone one-on-one in person that they see the real you as opposed to just your conviction on a, on a piece of paper. Yeah. And the reality is that many people have those subconscious biases that even if they're like, no, I would give anyone an opportunity, those come into play when you are have to, you know, there's actually research being done. Juan can touch up a little bit more about this. Uh, But there's actually research um, being done on how this uh, being formally incarcerated or not affects your um, employment opportunities. Um, But uh, like I said, that was passed here at UC Berkeley. And then we um, worked on getting that policy across all UCs. And that was also successful. So I believe it was like in 2016, the one at Berkeley and then in 2017, the one across all UCs. OK. Um. So those were some of like the policy things that we kind of were working on here um, and then continuously um, solidified. So under underground scholars, um, we have like three main, I would say, bucket areas, recruitment, retention, advocacy and policy. Um, and so for me, it was very much so about the livelihood of the program depends on having more formally incarcerated students. So I think for me as the former program director, that was my primary one of my primary goals to ensure that there that the people that needed our resources were able to get those resources and so um we actually worked with folks during the application cycle um getting folks to apply and um the two cycles that i did as a um, while i was here employed um we had an 100 percent success rate of students getting admitted into a uc okay. um not everyone into uc berkeley of course but Um, into a UC. So everybody that applied that we helped that was formerly incarcerated got into a UC.
1: Those are good wins. Those are very good wins. Um, Have have you guys ever kind of taken the temperature with the rest of the student body? Like the people that have the beach houses, how do they feel Mm -hmm. if if they know they're going to school with these ex-cons? Or do they they even care (laughs) being kids? I mean,
2: Well, some people like to use ex-cons. Some people like to use felons. I like to say, I I say formerly incarcerated um, only because... I feel that when you use that X, you know, you're. it's like you're still dragging. It's like if you, you know, picture yourself being incarcerated and you have chains around yourself. It's like <laughs> you're still dragging that ball, you know, like it, it's, it's you know, I laugh now, but I think that a lot of people still hold on to that. Or, you know, like the first thing that they ask is, what were you convicted of? What's your crime? And yeah. I think that's why I choose, um, or I, a lot of us choose to not self-disclose. Though I'm very open about, you know, I... Was fortunate enough that I didn't end up in prison, and I did, you know, juvenile hall, county jail time, um, on multiple occasions. I think that being called, you know, like ex-con or ex-felon, it's still kind of like it. It's a kind connota- of it's like a negative connotation about the person that I am, and it's like ex, like that used to be me, but it's still being dragged. Yeah. Um, and so we tell people, you know, we're formerly incarcerated. Yeah, we, you know, whatever it is that we did, we did our time. Uh, we came home um, and and now we're here and i like to tell people we were brought up you know very differently but yeah we both ended up at the same place
1: yeah i kind of opened the door for you on that one because like, <laughs> I, I actually have your i have your underground scholars language guide and I, and I love it because i used to call people returning citizens yeah but then you got like and you kind of made the statement that well you're not really returning citizen because you don't have all the rights of a citizen right so you're a returning resident right so for you know formerly incarcerated is good Returning yeah. resident, you know, in some context.
2: Yeah, I feel, I mean, I personally like formally incarcerated. I, I've heard returning citizen. I just feel like I, I just don't, I'm like, I'm returning to, I mean, I didn't want to leave in the first place. Um, And so I, I don't know. I just don't know if that quite fits with, uh, for me, returning is like, I'm coming back to something that I wasn't wanted. Like
1: you, re- yeah. I don't
2: know. It, it's it's. I, I can use
1: that for our students because we have incarcerated students, uh-huh. and when they come back is like our returning citizens. Oh right, right. Meaning that makes they, sense. They're literally returning. Sense. Right, but of course, once they're actually home, then they're just <laughs> right. former incarcerated. For,
2: exactly, and that makes sense. And I think I'm very. I think at least on our campus, we've been very good about training that language and getting other uh, professors to adopt that language where you want to be open to your students and also I think being open um it, it just puts the I think it puts it at the forefront where everybody is is like oh they are formerly incarcerated students here on our campus and that kind of sets the tone that why shouldn't we be here um and, and it kind of sets you know if a professor says it um in front of all their students then I think it definitely sets a tone that we are here um we at uh we're you know, being given, like, our place, we're not being dehumanized by being called, you know, ex-felons or whatever other term people want to use, criminal, um, so I think, yeah, that language guide, like you mentioned, is it's, it's a very good thing, um, I, you know, um, I don't think I'd be where I'm at if it wasn't for my Underground Scholars family, at least, like, the people that were there for me, supported me, and then, you know, we, like I said, it's, was kind of like our baby,
1: yeah, that's, that's a really great uh, definition. It's like, this is your family now. Yeah. You found your tribe. Yeah, I definitely. Ber- Berkeley is your tribe in one, one way, but this is like your, definitely. your tight group. But this
2: is like, yeah, my, my legit tribe. Your legit tribe. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, after I left uh, from being the director, I actually felt like I still needed to pursue additional studies. And so I applied to law school and now I'm in law school. It's my second year. Where'd you go in law school? I'm currently at UC Hastings law school. Nice. Yeah.
1: Congratulations.
2: Thank you. Um, And, you know, when I transferred, I somebody said, don't talk about you being formerly incarcerated in law school because employees are going to hear and it's going to be negative and students are going to use that against you. That's not you. Yeah, I, I, I really I took it with a grain of salt. Um, and I'm like, it'll come up, yeah, and, it'll come. you know, I'll have to You're eventually. Uh, yeah, and I think now a lot of, I would say, uh, I've disclosed it a few times. Um, I actually won this award. Uh, I would, I think it was last Thursday, and
1: you won an award last it Thursday. Was, it,
2: it was, yeah, it was a scholarship award, um, and I, it was the first time I disclosed in front of over a hundred judges and attorneys. Um, wow. Other, yeah, so we try to speak like three to five minutes. Um, and I, th- I, to me, it's important that I lay it out there that there are folks like that that want to pursue a legal career and that we, you know, I want just people to recognize that that does exist and that it, I don't want it to be an anomaly.
1: So curiously, uh, do you know Tara Simmons? Yes. So in Washington, she, had, she went through law school, she passed mm-hmm. the bar, but then the, the state of Washington wouldn't let her become an attorney exactly. because she had to pass the moral and ethics board or whatever it was. I still have
2: to pass that correct?
1: And so, you know, Sean Hopwood argued in front of the Supreme Court, and now she, she opened the door for other ex, yes. you know, formerly incarcerated people yeah. to become attorneys. Right. So what are the barriers in California, and are there any other formerly incarcerated people that are attorneys?
2: I do know a couple of people who are attorneys. Um, I won't disclose their names in case they they don't want to be disclosed but I think uh So it is possible. one though. person that I'm thinking in particular he's very open about his experience um but um I do think it is possible um I have heard that I might have to present before a committee um essentially if you have a felony you're considered a level 4 in terms of um The moral and character, which is ironic because the maximum prisons in California is a level four, correct? Yep. So I just found that very ironic. Um, And so, yeah, any felony that you do have on your record, um, you might have to present before a committee. You might not. Um, But basically, I do have to go before. I do have to explain every single arrest, every single
1: conviction. That could be a lot.
2: Exactly. I'm not looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah, I am not looking forward to doing that. But... Um, It could be done. I have heard that for folks like us, it could take 10, 12 months, maybe even longer. And so I've been advised to start submitting my um, my application early on. Um, But like I said, I you know, at least on my campus, I've self-disclosed a few times to some numerous amount of people. Now, I feel that to understand where I'm going or where I'm at, you have to understand where I came from and you have to understand where I've been to really um, to really understand why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. And, and, and also I feel that being outspoken leads, paves the way for other people to not feel that shame. I mean, if you are formally incarcerated, it doesn't mean that, you know, everybody makes mistakes. Um, it just doesn't mean that you can't achieve your goals. Um, and I think that I found that liberating that I can speak on these experiences and that other people have said, I'm glad that you're speaking about it because, you know, I um, I've never disclosed, or like people have came up and told me like this is the first time that I feel empowered to speak about my own story and to talk about being formally
1: incarcerated. Yeah, speaking of like everyone's made a mistake is that's a really interesting point because I was at some conference a couple of years ago, and somebody from Berkeley presented, I think from the, I think she's part of the law school, but she had some study that somebody at Berkeley did some research and they figured out that 92 percent of Americans have done something that would have landed them in prison. Right. Not just jail, but prison. Right. And so when people are like really us versus them, all these criminals are on one side and we're yeah. just regular people. It's like they just didn't get caught. Exactly. They had a great an attorney. I mean that's 92 percent of all Americans. That's like yeah. almost everybody. Yeah. Could have been in prison.
2: I think I think where you mentioned this is a good point. One, the they they weren't caught, right? But the second important thing, the second most important thing, which is one of the reasons why I pursued a legal career, as well, um, is that many many of the times that I was being represented or had like a public defender, which many of us called public pretenders, (laughs) um, including me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, um, Or dump trucks. Yeah. (laughs) And I say that because I, it literally it was like you were just a number, and it's
1: like, here, you need to take this plea deal. is what's yeah. best for you. And oh, it's, it's terrible. Like, I fought my public defender more than I fought <laughs> <Yeah>. the prosecutor. <laughs> exactly. It I'm like, crazy. no, I don't want to take this I deal. I went through three of them. You're <laughs> out of here. Like one guy showed up. He didn't even have a pen. He had to borrow a notepad from the cops. I was like, oh, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, no,
2: you're fired. Yeah, yeah. Judge, I Next. want a new lawyer. Next. But this is, you know, it, it's it's funny now that I'm speaking to you, but but, you know, if you recall being in that situation and feeling like, Excuse my language but what the fuck? Yeah. Like, you know, I'm uh, and then you see the people who are able to afford an yeah. attorney
1: and you're the guy that's going to get me some kind of justice.
2: Yeah. No. It's
1: like you get as much justice as you can afford. Right. I can't afford any. So Exactly. I any. And
2: I think a lot of I think a lot of public defenders are good attorneys It's just many of them are overloaded with work. They they're not allowed the proper amount of hours per case that For a private sure. attorney could afford you, that a private attorney is going to look into your Uh, your case thoroughly they're gonna really advocate for you um and i think for you know um when you're like these public defenders that are being overworked overloaded um the reality is um it's it's a governmental failure that you know you can't that you're not giving them the fair representation that you know they just people deserve
1: yeah like even in california i had a public I don't want to call him a public pretender because he, he was actually good because, like, in <laughs> Washington, I had the, the terrible ones. Right. <laughs> but in California, my crime was kind of infamous in Santa Barbara. So I got, like, a private attorney that, like, he, he did, like, some pro bono work. So I don't know. Like he, I'm sure he got paid somehow. Yeah, but, um, exactly. But he actually had a decent attorney. So, yeah, he didn't get <laughs> me off, but I did get st- totally railroaded.
2: Well, that's what I mean. Like, there are, and I've met uh, many now that I'm in law school, many great public defenders, but... Um, At least it was, you know, I don't know. I do know that it also varies per city in terms of what their caseload looks like for a public defender, how many cases they're taking at one time. Um, Also, in terms of like resources, you got to think if you're fighting your case and you want to take it to trial as a public defender, the city has to approve a cost for experts um just the numerous things if you go to trial versus if you have the money you hire a private attorney if you have the money you're going to hire the expert you're going to hire the second expert the third expert a forensic you know
1: and everyone knows experts are like you know, you pay for the opinion
2: exactly and so i think that these these are like very important things that i had to deal with and that you know one of the main reasons why i decided to be in the legal field um, and pursue a law, a law degree because, you know, the knowledge of being an attorney and being able to practice is something that no one can take from you. But as a formerly incarcerated, I think it's, it's a very empowering thing to be able to be like, actually, I know the law, and that's not what it says. Um, and, you know, and I think, um, you know, it's as a personal thing as well, you know, being able to go from high school dropout, formerly incarcerated, to being an attorney, um, which is uncom- you know, uncommon, but I think it's uncommon because we're not rendered the proper resources and support to be able to make that transition. But as proof, as many underground scholars have you know, proven that with the right support and resources and the right uh, people and mentors, femtors, to be there for you, that you are able to make that transition to not just thrive, but be successful and continue on to grad school.
1: Isn't it kind of funny how... You know, on one context, you say, oh, you're committing all these crimes when you're young. You're, just, you're never going to amount to anything. Right. Or or something could happen.
2: I want to tell that to all the cops that told me that once. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I really do, <laughs> once I get that law degree. Yeah, people are really resilient. They're, they're plastic. They're just going to bounce back, and whatever opportunity right. is open, they, they might chase it. I
2: think I always tell people, when you walked out of your house, what did you see? And that's something that I... That because people, you know, I don't like it when people say we all have the same opportunities, because when people say that it diminishes the government's role, it diminishes the society's role in providing not equal but equitable resources to everyone. Now, I tell people when you walk out your house, what do you see? Because if you're living in, you know, Beverly Hills or if you're living in a very well, you know, residential area where you walk out perfect lawns, perfect strip of houses your opportunities are very different than if you're living in a demolished neighborhood where the streets are all messed up, where there's crack houses. And the reality is that you don't have the same opportunities. And sometimes as young individuals, we do things, we do what's best for us within the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And whether that's crime, whether that's drugs, whatever it may be, it's, it's because it's, what we were exposed to and what's, yes, you know, our, our us around us. Correct.
1: And that's a really good point. Uh, a different guy podcasted a couple of days ago. He was a transfer student and he got into Stanford.
2: Yeah, and, that's, that's awesome. And uh, <laughs> as a
1: transfer student getting into Stanford, apparently out of a pool of 3,000 people, only 24 got in. And so... He had a funny story because when he checked the email on his computer and he clicked on it, he just freaked the fuck out. He threw the computer across the room. Yeah. <laughs> he, just had, he had a total meltdown. But then he still kind of didn't believe it. And then the actual dean from the school called him. Called
2: The dean of the school. That's and, and, impressive. And
1: called him and said, hey, I'm your mentor. So wow. he he was in. And he kind of asked. He goes, hey, uh, I didn't have the, you know, like, how did I get in, basically? Right. And the, and the point was he didn't have a 1600 uh SAT. SAT. You know, his GPA wasn't off the chart. And the admissions committee looked at it like, if you have a 1600 GPA and really, I mean, 1600 uh, SAT, yeah. and like a, a four-point GPA, you're probably a rich kid with tutors. You never have to work another job. You can do all of these things with all the support mechanism. Right. Or if he's if you're working a couple of jobs and you're doing this all on your own, they want to see that you can do the best with what right. you've got. And that's a really cool way to look at it.
2: Right. I think... Um... Not too bad Stanford, but
1: <laughs> it's a decent school. It's a
2: decent school. I I think a lot of our students don't end up applying to Stanford because even as a transfer student, the SAT score is a requirement. And a lot of our students um, dropped out of high school at a young age or didn't get like a formal high school education. And so they didn't they don't have the SAT scores and to apply you still you would have to like go to a testing site and actually take the SAT to be able to apply. Oh, gotcha. So I think a lot
1: what's your cutoff?
2: i i actually i I don't know but i i do know that a lot of us didn't take the sats because we dropped out um and so
1: can't you take the sats at any point or i
2: think you can but just the the reality is that a lot of the times um life is in the way while you're applying and not just that but i think people don't necessarily think they'll get into a school such as stanford um because of what they hear or because of how Stanford is viewed as a very elitist school. Not that it's not. I I think it's still very elite. Uh, But I think that it it also shows. um, So if more and more people start being accepted, then I think it becomes more of a, hey, you should apply there. And I think that's what we basically did here at Berkeley. Because before, people would ask, well, when we would apply to grants, what's the need? What are the numbers of formerly incarcerated students? And that's something we couldn't provide um and we didn't want to have a box that said if you're applying are you formally incarcerated because then you think they're not going to accept me so i don't want to say the yeah. truth
1: and then, like even short of like your group kind of formed organically but right. if that if that didn't happen like how would you pull the student body like right. send out like send out surveys hey we're just checking yeah
2: exactly <laughs> just checking Go ahead and so and- i think now what they do is once you get accepted and With the thousands of emails that you get, you know, I think they do include like, oh, you know, something about like all the resources, but they also include our name. But I think at the time when we when we spoke about we told um, when we did, you know, these writings for grants, um, we don't have the exact numbers, but that's because people don't want to self disclose if they're not gaining anything. If I'm just gaining stigma I'm not going to tell you I'm formally yeah. incarcerated for
1: what there's no upside e-
2: exactly yeah. but then once we had those resources, we started seeing more and more students come through the door more and more students reach out to us uh, prison letters uh, from like you know even other states we had like we've had people write to us from different states we've had people come home and specifically move to the area relocate so that they could have resources available to them um, and I think it's something unique that you know, a lot of UCs are, are in the process of replicating this, and there are student orgs on the campus, um, but the universities, I'm going to shame them for them right now. I'm going to shame them for this. The universities still have to kind of say, yes, we want this as part of our institutionalized, as part of our campus, um, and I think um, that, you know, like I said, I, I think because we definitely push for it as students, um, as like a grassroots organization, but we also recruited you know, the support of faculty members um, and other community members that had our back. We, you know, were close to Sacramento where we were able to go and um, work with legislators or like reach out. And so I think, um, and also being in the Bay Area, I do find it that is a lot more progressive than other areas. Um, So that definitely had, you know, a play into everything.
1: Well, it sounds like you're going to be a powerhouse. (laughs) Berkeley Law School, you're opening up Opportunity.
2: Well, that's what we're aiming to do, right? So if
1: you had a magic wand (laughs) and you could just, like, make everything perfect, what would that look like?
2: Uh, The abolition of prisons, for sure. That'd be one. Um,
1: No prisons at all?
2: No prisons. What
1: would that look like?
2: Well, it's funny because, you know, I always tell people tell me, I'm like, well, before people couldn't imagine a world without slavery. Yeah. But now we're like, how could we not? So I just find it, you know, interesting that people will say, well, how can we be, how can there be no prisons? It's like there were no prisons before. It started with paid labor for, you know, people who were, like, convict leasing. Um, And so if people do their research, they'll realize that prisons weren't, like, it wasn't how it is now. Prisons weren't started like that. Um, It was something that became the new slavery. Um, And it's, a lot of it is for profit. Yes, um, the social construct. For the sure. prison industrial complex. Um, just at San Quentin, a lot of the student, um, a lot of the desks and and furniture that's here at UC Berkeley was done at San Quentin yeah, by PIA. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I used to work there. Oh, did you? <laughs> but, uh, that's in Tehachapi, so oh, but we had one yeah. there too. Oh, well, exactly. And so coats. a lot of people don't, you know, they're like, "What? I didn't know that." Exactly. So it's it's a lot of for profit, um, and so I think it behooves many corporations to have. Um these beds filled with our people um because they keep producing at a low I mean they get paid what ten cents an hour thirteen I well, I know some in furniture get paid like a dollar but nonetheless I mean
1: yeah. and so this could really open up an, another really long conversation yes but if you if you talk about like the thirteenth amendment and if you took if you amended that where where prisoners couldn't be slave labor anymore, and you had to pay them market right. wage and wages. Imagine how many prisons would close if you oh have, yeah definitely prisoners run the prisons like they do right. everything from the cooking to the cleaning to... right. You know,
2: and, and now you have you know detention centers for undocumented yeah. folks too. Now they can hold you legally yeah. for longer amount of you know longer amount of periods without because you have no constitutional rights or so they say.
1: And the prisons are so expensive anyways, but imagine if they had to pay people 60000 dollars a year exactly that oh
2: i'm i'm sure our number would not be two plus million currently incarcerated yeah, probably be
1: about twenty thousand, <laughs> <laughs> maybe 30 right well awesome violetta is wonderful talking to you keep up the good work thank you we'll i in appreciate in it years, definitely see where you're at uh, thank where, you so much where do you think it's going to be
2: um well we'll see but you know hopefully hopefully in a few years uh Big changes. I want to, you know, work either on policy or um, be able to do a lot of pro bono with within our own community and our own people.
1: Awesome. So, Violeta. Oh, I totally forgot your last
2: name. Alvarez. But yeah. it's Violeta.
1: Viol- okay. So, so, so,
2: I'm going to check you because I'm like, my, my, my mom would be like, that's not your name.
1: Okay. So, I can totally redo it. So, Violetta. Violetta. Violetta Alvarez. Yes, perfect. Styles Hall, UC Berkeley. You're and now, awesome. ha- and now
2: Hastings Law School. Yes, And
1: Hastings Law School, bam. Yeah, thanks for your time. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>